our God. Then Jesus went into the temple and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. The word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless this your word, this whole account which we have read together this morning, that you would work through even this well-known narrative, but by your spirit work, new obedience, new reverence, and revived worship in our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for the glory of his name. Amen. Worship is at the heart of the Palm Sunday and the Monday narrative. Not at the heart of it for probably many of those involved, uh, but certainly for Christ, worship is central to these events that take place in the triumphal entry and following. Whether in the streets or in the temple, it is the worship of the rightful king which is the biblical focus. Which I I was meditating on this last week. If most of us were thinking top ten list of most important things for Jesus to communicate about before his death, would corporate worship make the list? I, I don't know. I think many of us would, would go the same place as the disciples go a day or two later, eschatology, right? We, we want to know what Jesus has to say about that uh, and, and maybe some other things. Who's first? Uh, springing off of our Sunday school class, is it Presbyterians or Congregationalists or Baptists that are right? Those are the things we want to know before Jesus dies. Christ focuses our attention in the Gospels on worship. Here on Palm Sunday, there's a lot about worship on display, but sadly, most of it is not overly positive. And that's hard because it looks so positive at first glance. In fact, every year when I'm picking what portions to read, there's this part of me for Palm Sunday that I want 
to be able to have us just stop at, well, maybe Luke, uh, with, with maybe verse 38, where they're crying Hosanna and following him to the city. I don't necessarily always want myself to have to go on to all the negative stuff. The Pharisees. Christ weeping over the city and the events at the temple. And yet that's there. It really takes Christ's focus. Christ doesn't seem to be caught up in the glory. He seems to be caught up in the danger. The danger of weak worship. Distracted worship. Worship that is... Uh, misfocused, perhaps. So I want to think some about that today and then also uh, end hopefully highlighting some of the positive of worship in the text. What worship do men bring? I think that's the question of Palm Sunday. What worship do men bring? I had five points originally, then three points made my notes in front of me, and I'm only going to bring two of them today. I'm scratching one. Uh, But I think these two, as simple as they're going to sound, are very dangerous in our hearts, in our practice, perhaps. Because these very things which are weak about the worship on that, that Palm Sunday long ago can very easily be true in us if we don't watch ourselves. The first of these things is that the worship men bring is often thoughtless. It's often thoughtless. We look at this piece together narrative from the Gospels and and what we find is two giant crowds coming together to surround Jesus. How many of them are thinking of it as worship? Even though they're singing worshipful things. Most of them are thinking of it as political. But these two crowds come together. The, the one crowd it seems in Matthew, Mark, and Luke to uh, be coming with Jesus towards the city as he was staying the night before, probably with uh, Lazarus, his friend, outside of the city proper. And so to go up to the temple for the special feast day observances, Christ is headed that way. A lot of people were headed that way too. But they become a crowd that surrounds him and are caught up in proclaiming this prophecy of the king coming into Jerusalem. And John makes it clear then that there are people inside the city who hear, what's all this noise? Oh, it sounds great, doesn't it? And so they end up coming out to meet Jesus and go back in with him. Now, there, there's some thought, some thought given to this. People do ask, who is this? And others respond, it's that prophet who does all these amazing signs. John tells us that some of them were a little more specific than that. It's the man who raised Lazarus from the dead. And we were there, and he stank. And Jesus called him out, and he came out of the tomb, and he's alive now. 
He was already decaying. We could smell him. He was really dead. Jesus called on his name and he came out and he's alive. And so this crowd does have some thought given to who Jesus is. I I think the real problem, though, is that they're caught up on the miracles and never do the exegesis. Remember the John 9 exegesis of the man who had been born blind? It took him a little while to get there. He had to be pushed to get there. But the man had been born blind. And finally, after getting pushed by his, uh, his spiritual betters, uh, he says, well, wait a second. I've been blind my whole life. This is like day two of being able to see. And you don't know who this man is? No one since the creation of the world has made a man who was born blind able to see. And so he gets excommunicated and goes out and finds Jesus. No, he doesn't. Jesus finds him. But when Jesus finds him, he knows Jesus for who he is. He does the exegesis and he falls down and he worships him. Not as some guy who gave me sight. He worships him as God in the flesh. How many did that kind of exegesis as they accompanied Christ and sang these amazing hymns, Hosanna to the Son of David? Well, the Pharisees did some of it to their own condemnation. The Pharisees say, we're accomplishing nothing. All our disciples are going after this man. And they're saying things about this man that proclaim him the Messiah. The son of man of Daniel. And we think that's blasphemy. So we're going to rebuke it. But how many others did that kind of exegesis? The apostles don't seem to think that they did it themselves. Not until later. That their own sincere adoration of Christ was still very shallow. And in fact, when we look at Luke and read what Christ has to say in Luke 19, 41 through 44, we find that Christ indeed does not consider that there was enough thought put into their worship. Because in the midst of what none of us will ever experience, that many people shouting the praise of our name and calling us the Messiah, in the midst of all those things that our egos would cause us to fall into sin and get caught up in, Christ isn't caught up in the the shouts. He cries over Jerusalem. Now, while he's crying and talking about the stones of Jerusalem, what's the bigger point he's making? It's about the people. And he makes, he makes the, the comment, as we read earlier, that the things that make for their peace are hidden from their eyes. I think that's the heart of Palm Sunday. Hear these people, their thought, what is there, is very external. He gives sight to the blind. He maybe raised this guy Lazarus, if people can be trusted. 
He, he cares for the poor. He's done all these wonderful outward things, right? He gave, if, if the people can be trusted, he gave bread to a lot of people. And so let's, let's exalt him and let's follow him into the city and the unspoken thing, probably in many of their minds, let's march on Herod. Here he is, he's going to set Herod straight. He's going to deal with the problem of politics. But what happens to that same crowd when Christ instead marches on the temple and addresses the problem of worship? Who's left singing Hosanna then? A couple of kids. They didn't put the thought into the worship they brought. It sounded great. But they never got to the point. What brings them peace? Would Herod overthrown and David's line back on the throne of Jerusalem bring them peace? Or would the restoration of of worship as we are reconciled and able to come rightly into the presence of God, would that bring them peace? Most didn't worship thinking it through. And so so Christ can allude to the fact that they're still going to be looking for peace in the wrong place when in 70 A.D., It's all brought to an end. Because they refused to look at the way Christ presented worship and the reason and the who. It's thoughtless often the way worship is done. They sang the right words. I wonder how many many times... Do we sing the right words thoughtlessly in worship? How many times do we mutter the confession thoughtlessly in worship? How many prayers are prayed in worship distractedly? Something I I never realized would be possible and is a constant terror to me now is you can even be the one leading in a corporate prayer and realize that while your mouth is running, you have started thinking of something else. And then, of course, your thought is always, did I start saying the other thing? And you, you do what you shouldn't do. You glance at every, no one's, no one's looking up, so I must not have been <laughs> saying what I was thinking about so-and-so, uh, or whatever the thing might be. How many thoughtless prayers... How much of this will we, apart from the grace of Christ, be held accountable for? Well, thankfully we have the grace of Christ, don't we? But we shouldn't take that for granted. Worship needs to be thoughtful. Thoughtful. Think of the third commandment. Westminster Confession of Faith, when, uh, or the Shorter Catechism, Larger Catechism, when talking about the, the third commandment, one of the things it says about not taking the name of the Lord your God in vain is not simply don't use his name as a swear, 
but also don't use his name thoughtlessly. When you speak of him, speak of it, him with reverence. I, I saw a um, I saw a coloring page that that someone had made for Easter or something, and the cartoon of Jesus. All I could think was, even if you don't have a problem with pictures of Jesus, how does anyone think this is reverent? I do have a problem with pictures of Jesus, but but but, but even if you don't, how do you find this? Reverent. And I think we have to say the same thing about so much of how we speak about Jesus. How can I say that I was being reverent? Upholding the honor of his name. Well, Psalm 47, verse 7 tells us this about our worship. For God is the king of all the earth, unspoken therefore. Sing praises with understanding. Because he is the king of all the earth, you had better verbalize it in song with thoughtfulness. The second thing often men bring and that we see on display on this this uh, triumphal entry and the events surrounding it is that so often we bring lazy worship. I know those two things sound the same, don't they? Thoughtless and lazy. They can, they can overlap. But thoughtless is more how our minds are inactive while we worship. Lazy is how we approach worship. And I think surely we, we see this especially as Christ enters into the temple and starts throwing over the tables, cleaning it all up. The selling of animals in the temple should not have been taking place. It shouldn't have. It's not simply the way they were going about selling the animals, but the very fact that they were selling animals there. Selling animals by itself wasn't the problem. The reason this had started in the first place was, uh, well, if you're a fisherman, you might not own the animals that you need. You can't bring a trout for a blood sacrifice. God won't accept that. And so you you need to be able to get a hold of the right sacrifice. So it's appropriate to sell some of your trout, or I don't know if they have trout around there. Whatever the fish would be, whatever Peter used to sell, you sell it, and and then you, you purchase the appropriate sacrifice to bring to the temple. Or if you lived way up in Dan, way, way up north of Galilee, and you had to travel all the way down there, that it, it was okay for you to purchase your sacrifice in the city rather than traveling all those days with the animal. But it shouldn't have been purchased in the temple precinct. 
Nehemiah is very firm that we need to even think about how we purchase it in the city, when we purchase it for the glory of God, but, but it should never have been in the temple. But the, the Jews in Christ's day said, well, the outer courts is okay. The outer courts, the court of the Gentiles. You know, if the Gentiles circumcised are allowed to go there, God must not care what takes place in there that much because they're Gentiles. And so we can also sell things there. And, and so then the priests started this extortion plan to take money from people. They would, they would sell the rights to a handful of merchants to practice their trade in the outer court. Like the town, you know, sells whatever, gives the bid for the new library to a specific contractor. And so the, the high priest would take a huge commission. It was extortion. Everyone knew it. The high priest took an obscene amount of money from the merchants to sell there. So the merchants sold their, their sacrifices, their animals for sacrifices for an extortionate price. And they also had money changers because if you were a, a Jew who was coming from Alexandria, Egypt, and all you had was whatever the money was in Alexandria, you needed to conveniently have the ATM so that you could get the Jewish money so that you could buy the sacrifice so that you could bring the sacrifice to God. And so they had all these things going on in the courts. Christ is upset about the whole thing. He's upset about the extortion, but it's clear he's also upset about where this is taking place. Now, now here's a question. Why would anyone pay extortionate rates to purchase a sacrifice at the temple when you could maybe pay a third less by walking down the block? Because we bring lazy worship. If every week, every single one of you, you know, if, if we were a weird cult that had rules like this, and we had a rule that you had to put I don't know, a, a rose in the offering plate every week to be a member of this church. And you could buy a single rose, maybe the gas station down the road, Cumberland Farms maybe figured out that we were this weird cult. So they started selling single roses. And maybe they sell them for, I don't know, what, what's a rose worth? $80 a single rose? I, whatever the price is today. And then I set up shop right down on the stairwell selling them for twice that price. I bet I would still make money. Because how many times would you get to the parking lot and then realize, oh, I didn't grab that rose yesterday at the gas station. Not prepared, right? We're lazy about things. Or, or I'm running late. It's just easier to give Nathan the $160 for a rose. Whatever. Uh, uh, history proves that that's true. Maybe some of you are... I'm not accusing anyone of this. Maybe some of us are stingy enough that you would remember your rose every week <laughs> and not pay the extortionate price. But some of us would because... There's this aspect of laziness in preparing for worship. And that's what went on in Jerusalem. Poor people 
who didn't have money to begin with would pay extortionate rates for these sacrifices. And Christ is upset both about the extortion and about the place where it's going on. And we know he was upset about it going on in the court of the Gentiles because he talks about that, doesn't he? He says, Have you, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Well, yeah, but we don't let it happen on the inner courts of the temple. Well, only the outermost, but the Gentiles get to come here. What's the big deal? Remember the full quote? Because they, they would have. Christ is quoting from Isaiah. The context in Isaiah is that God declares that he is going to have worshipers who are reverent. And then he throws the jab in there at Israel. Reverent worshipers come from the nations. And then he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. The Gentiles. Yes, even the outer courts, as far as they're permitted to go, is still to be a house of prayer. A house of fellowship and relationship. A house where they can go and commune and speak to the God of the universe. And instead you've turned it into a shopping mall. With convenient ATMs. Think about what lazy worship does to the gospel itself. When an unbeliever walks through the doors and sees lazy worship, what did they see at the courts? If a Gentile came and gazed through those gates into the outer courts to get a sense of what this religion taught, what would they take away? Lazy religion in Christ's day made a mockery out of the sacrificial system. It did. And and we New Testament people may not think it's a big deal to make a mockery of the sacrificial system because we make fun of it quite a bit. Shame on us. The sacrificial system was an expression of the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. It was how they saw Christ before the incarnation. Those sacrifices were supposed to declare, in my place, condemned it stands. The best innocent blood. But what is the world going to think when it sees you staggering into worship quickly exchanging some money because you didn't plan to get there in time, going over and paying an extortionate rate to buy an animal, but now I'm okay with God because he's got his animal now. that's, That's a works righteousness, isn't it? It's a purchasing God's favor. And that's what the temple was teaching the world. Lazy worship makes a mockery out of grace. And so does it for us. When we don't 
Take it seriously. Now, I have to be really careful here because I just preached on judgmentalism last week. And these two thoughts are not mutually exclusive. That I cannot sit and judge your heart of worship based on your appearance. But lazy worship makes a mockery out of the gospel. The thing that keeps me from uh, sinning on the one hand while making that second statement is I need to examine my heart. And you need to examine your heart as you approach worship. What you wear doesn't make God more pleased with you versus something else, but it may say something in your own heart about the laziness or the seriousness with which you take worship, how you stumble through the doors or get here and, and prepare your heart may say a lot about lazy worship. And while we aren't supposed to sit around and try to judge each other's hearts, the unbelieving world always will. Remember, one of the main points last week was that we aren't to be judgmental of each other on things when we can't read the heart. Not only because we can't read the heart, because it's, it's a graceless approach to life, sitting around, sneering at each other. But a graceless world will always do that. What do they see if they pop their head in the door and look at our approach to worship? And, and again, our own hearts, it's very important to examine. Now, I, I don't want to fall into the pharisaical thing of giving you 37 laws for how to come to worship if you're going to be a holy person. But let, let me at least make a few suggestions that might be baby steps, might be baby steps for you. Sometimes we come to worship lazy or thoughtless because we're distracted by everything else and haven't focused energy on worship enough. So throughout the history of the church, many have encouraged us to think deeply about how we approach Saturday night. If you're not going to come lazily into worship on Sunday morning, then we need to make sure that we are dealing with our other affairs that would distract us as I run through this door thoughtlessly or that would uh, take up my time so that I'm coming in haphazardly. We need to deal with them properly ahead of time. We also need to get enough rest, if possible. We can't always control that. What about how you spend your time before waking up and coming through the doors of church? Assuming, because I see you, and I know none of you just rolled out of bed and came as you were. Not that, well, anyway. I know you didn't just roll out of bed and came as you were, because I don't think any of you look this good when you're in bed, probably. Uh, so, so what do you do in between the two things? Well, are you coming thoughtfully and are you coming not lazily but with intent to worship if, 
if you're distracted by the things going on in the world around you? How might you get distracted? Well, you're sitting with your coffee and you open the newspaper. Are our hearts coming to worship properly if we're, if we're nauseous over what we see in the newspaper as we walk into church? Maybe, maybe wait on reading that newspaper. If not till Monday morning, which would be my recommendation, at least until after church. The world will wait. It'll always be there. Today, we're worshiping God. He's more important. Most of you don't probably get paper newspapers. Social media falls into the same category. Technology in general. We have time for a lot of things. And then we don't make time to prepare our hearts for worship. And Christ cares very much both about the thoughtfulness and the potential laziness with which we come to worship. In fact, the author of Hebrews tells us that our God is a consuming fire, therefore we'd better worship with reverence and awe. That's not a lazy approach to worship. That requires thinking and it requires preparation. Well, there's a lot more maybe we could say and critique, but I just want to stick with those two points this morning. Lazy and thoughtless worship. And instead, what does Christ look for? Christ looks for the worship of the children of God. Here we find the children are the only ones who keep saying the right things. Now, again, we can't read their hearts, but I think there's a significance to the fact that Christ applies the prophecy of David in Psalm 8 to the children who keep saying Hosanna in the temple. Maybe 24 hours later, if this is on Monday. But certainly after everyone else has abandoned this uh, crazy man who's ruining our temple time. The children keep saying the right worshipful things, and Christ points to that. I think it's significant, significant that we read of this in Matthew. Because Matthew is one of the Gospels that also earlier included Christ talking about, let the little children come to me, do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And then having established that children are part of what he brings into his kingdom, he then turns to all of us, including the apostles, and says, all of you need childlike faith. No one enters the kingdom of heaven apart from a childlike faith. Not childish faith. Childish faith is lazy. Childish faith is thoughtless. Childlike faith. What, what are some of the things we could say about childlike faith? First, childlike faith is obedient. When Christ talks about childlike faith, he's talking about obedient children. We need rebuke if our faith isn't obedient. And obedient begins then with looking at this fact that Christ cleanses the temple 
He wants something that's not just outward. He wants the inner reality, the house of prayer. The the child of God comes obediently saying, God, strip away whatever about our worship doesn't please you. That's childlike faith. How do we feel if God exposes to us something in our worship or in our life that we, we liked doing and we thought was worshipful, but he exposes that he doesn't want it? How, what's our gut response? I, I think sometimes it's a... How, how could he say that? What does that say about my entire experience before now? I've been doing it this way for years. Does that mean I'm not really saved? Or or maybe it's anger. How dare God say that I can't worship him in that way? But childlike faith says, okay, Hosanna to the son of David. You didn't go and march on Herod. You marched on the temple. You threw things over. Hosanna anyway. You're God. You're the Messiah. You deserve worship how you want it. Childlike faith is an obedient faith. It's also an adoring faith. An adoring faith. We struggle with that thought because we have lousy fathers in this life. Some don't have fathers. Some have lousy fathers. The best fathers are still sinners. But God, God is the Father who is never failing and never absent. And so when we talk about childlike faith, we have to talk about it in that context. And even in this life, when you have a okay or somewhat adequate father, when you're young enough, you find that which is to be adored. But if you have the perfect father, the heavenly father, there is always that to be adored. And a childlike faith adores him. Now, again, you and I can't see the difference. Were there adults in that crowd singing Hosanna who were adoring their heavenly father? Yes. How did you spot them in the crowd versus those who were being thoughtless? You can't. The Father can. Christ can. So we examine our own hearts. Am I adoring God? Or just saying the words? Going along with it? Being swept up in emotions? Or is it the emotion of one who knows the Heavenly Father in relationship? Adoring. Think think in Matthew here. Christ overturns the tables and everyone seems to disappear suddenly, except for two groups. The blind and the lame, who knew what Jesus had just did, done, still came to him. They weren't afraid to come to him. 
even though he'd just been throwing tables over and doing a little beating. (laughs) They came anyway. Maybe they came because they saw what no one else saw. Here is the one at this temple. The one who cares more about God's love for broken sinners than for anything else. And so adoringly, they they come to Christ and they receive their sight. They, They cry out to Christ and they walk away having never walked before. And then there's the other group, the children. And I think it's significant that Matthew on behalf of the Holy Spirit, places the emphasis that it is as the blind and the lame are being healed that the children start the chant up again. Hosanna. I think we're supposed to see that the children are not being thoughtless. They are adoring God for healing the blind right in front of them. The rebuke that has taken place doesn't stop them from adoring the Father, who is the Father who reconciles sinners and heals the broken. Childlike faith is obedient, but it's also adoring. And then it's it's finally urgent. It's urgent in its worship of God. The Pharisees say, Don't you hear what they're saying? What does Jesus say in response? Well, someone's got to. If the crowd stops, thoughtless though many of them were, if they stop, the rocks will cry out. There's an urgency in creation to the worship of God. Don't let the rocks beat us to it. Childlike faith has an urgency. When the king enters the room, he must be worshipped. And the child of God urgently must worship. Is urgent a word that defines how you feel on Sunday morning? I, I can't speak to any of you. It's not always a word that speaks to me on Sunday morning. Hopefully, increasingly, it's a word that applies to me on Sunday morning. Or maybe, maybe a sinful version of urgent. Maybe I do have urgency. Come on, we got to get ready. We got to get out the door. We got to get there. We get, Mr. Peter's setting up by himself this morning. We really got to get to church this morning. And then I left the keys inside and locked the door, so we had to walk, and Mr. Peter was here by himself anyway. (laughs) That's the wrong kind of urgency. Urgent because I need to worship God in his holy courts with his people. When the king is present, worship is necessary. When King Jesus is present, 
We must cry Hosanna. Brothers and sisters, let us, let us worship this.